welcome to episode 10, yes, we've hit a milestone, of Bridging the Gap. I'm your host, SET, and I hope you're doing well wherever you're listening from. If you're new to the show, Bridging the Gap is all about speaking with artists making waves in their creative field of choice and learning more about them, their journeys, their approach to their craft, and much more. Please be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at bridging underscore the gap pod bridging underscore the gap pod also make sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so that these episodes can pop up in your feed every wednesday the show recently passed 500 plays overall so thank you to everyone that's been tuning in consistently i really appreciate you all and i hope to keep building this show up so i took a break last week with the craziness of the nigerian presidential elections I'm really proud of everyone back home that went out and voted, even though things were definitely messy and it seems like we're going to have some prolonged court battles. I think it's really great to see so many young people trying to exercise their right and use their voice to enact change in a country that desperately, desperately needs it. I encourage everyone to go out again this weekend and vote in the gubernatorial elections, stay motivated, and just, you know, use your voice to the best of your abilities. My guest this week is Bumi Augusto, an extremely talented visual artist that is making really exciting, innovative, and thought-provoking work through drawing, painting, and printmaking on different materials. I've been familiar with Bumi and her work for a few years now, but it wasn't until I read Friends in Eternity, the book from our friend of the show and former guest Isabella Coro, that I was exposed to the workings behind Bumi's creative process. The book opens with a discussion on world building between Bumi and Isabel, moderated by Ade Abegunde, another friend of the show, where they both delve into the intricacies of world building and how they've created their own worlds which serve as a setting and inspiration for their respective pieces of art. Bumi's world is titled Within, and as the conversation continued, I was really impressed and enamored with both the depth and the detail that had gone into fleshing out this world. When I was thinking about guests for this podcast, she's someone I've had in mind for a while because I've been fascinated by her mind and the approach she takes to creativity. We had a really great conversation and I learned a whole lot. Bumi was really generous in bringing me into her world and her process, and I hope that you all enjoy our discussion. So without further ado, it's time to bridge the gap with Bumi Augusto. All right, all right, and welcome back to another episode of Bridging the Gap. Today, I am joined by an extremely talented artist, one of the most exciting and innovative visual artists I think that Nigeria has produced in a while, and I'm really honored and excited to have her on the show. Thank you, Bumi Augusto, for coming on Bridging the Gap. It's really great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a nice intro. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. No worries. So before we get into the real nitty gritty of everything, you are an artist that uses mixed material collages as like your artistic medium, right? Um, Actually, these days I've gradually moved away from collage. So it's mostly mixed media painting slash printmaking slash drawing. Okay. And on a, I guess, technical level, the materials that you're now working with, 
on a consistent basis, just for the listeners to understand are? Um, so this is all consistent with my collages. Um, so I mostly use pastel pencils. So that's basically um, chalk pastel in pencil form. Um, colored pencils, acrylic, ink. Yeah, those are the main ones. Um, it's just that the switch, I recently switched from using, from working on paper to pastel paper, which has a different texture. So the paper I use now can accommodate all the things I was trying to do with the different mediums all on one ground. Okay, I understand. So I guess growing up, were, was there anything that you felt influenced you or impacted you in a way that you're really comfortable expressing across different mediums and materials? Um, in terms of art making or in terms of concepts? I'd say art making first, and then we can go into concepts, but let's start with art making, just like on the practical level. Um, in terms of art making, my cousin is an artist. Her name is Mude Adirioko. And although I was like learning arts in school, she I used to go to her house almost every week and I always disturb her to teach me um her arts skills. And so she she mostly mostly uses watercolor. And so she tried teaching me that, but I did not like it. Um but by the time I, when I was in school, I randomly took to pastel pencil, and that was just always the magic for me. That's just what works with my brain, you know, what my brain was trying to do artistically. So yeah, pastel pencils, and it, it was just a like match made in heaven. <laughs> was it like from the very first time that she used pastel pencils, it was just like, aha, like this is it? 100%, yeah. It was, I think for I'll probably about 14 or 15, the first time I used pastel pencils. Because when I moved to England, I did sixth form in England. Because um, I've been teaching us so many different techniques for like the first term. And so they're teaching us printmaking. They taught us, well, we started with oil paints. And I never used oil paints before I moved to England. Um, and then I was decent. In my class, I was comparatively decent like using all those materials. But the second they let us then do whatever we want with whichever material we wanted. And I went back to my pastel pencils. They were like, oh, wow, we didn't know you could make work like that. <laughs> like, it was oh, one of those things. <laughs> I was like, that that was my thing. Okay, that's so interesting. Is it that, do you find, like, pastel pencil just conveys emotion in a better way? Or is there something that you've realized that sparks that connection like is there something have you figured out what caused that connection or is it just something you can't explain well i haven't really thought deeply about it but thinking well i not deeply but i've thought about it but um thinking out loud now well i'm definitely more of a drawer than a painter um i'm not a fan of sitting down with like different brushes and trying to like get different things out but I do use, I still paint skills in my practice now. Um, but sometimes I'll just actually use my fingers. In some works, you can tell that I've used my fingers to paint. Um, with, but with pastel pencils, I really like having a sharp edge to a piece of paper. So I've always preferred um, like a pencil or a pen. Um, drawing is its own thing, separate from painting. That has a very rich history. And it's often used for preparatory sketches. It's never you really, I mean, 
until recently in our history, wasn't seen as the finished product. It was seen as the preliminary stuff. And you have artists, and actually, those are the big Nigerian artists in the diaspora now, are drawers. <laughs> um, so that even Intideka, Akuni, Crosby, Tony Oji Odesola, Ruby Yohingichi and Manzi, they all use, they all, they all use drawing in their practice. And it's interesting that these high value artists, well, they definitely contributed to the value of drawing going up in this century. But it's also interesting that they all had that similarity. So I'm actually, I would love to think deeper about the relationship between Nigerian artists and drawing. I don't know where it comes from in particular, but there seems to be a pattern evolving. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like just Nigerians in general, we have so many excellent drawers, like even artists that aren't, let's say, blown or popular or famous, there's still a lot of talented people when it comes to drawing. And I'm not sure what it is about mm. Nigerians where that skill has been cultivated or developed really well. Yeah, exactly. It's something in our genes. We have to dig else in our history. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's something there. But I find that so fascinating that it was also not seen as the finished work. And now it's like that transition has taken place where you can derive value from drawings. Mm -hmm. In your own work, I guess, did that make you feel more comfortable when you saw like other Nigerians just expressing and pushing these drawings out as like finished products? And you're like, there are no rules, that type of thing. I think I'm lucky in that my arts education was not that strict and I never really felt that drawing as a lesser way of arts making. It was really after the fact that um, it came up in discussions. I think I was in university by the time people started asking me about drawing as opposed to why I was drawing as opposed to painting. Um, yeah, it, it was just one of those things for me. I, even noticing these artists that I just mentioned, again, it was after the fact. I, it wasn't really a conscious thing that they gave me the confidence to do it or anything. It was because I, like, I also have an art history degree and I also write and curate. Um, so I am very critical of like watch, watching what's going on around me in the art world. Um, so that's just where those connections come from. And also, the time they come after the fact, it's not really an inspiration thing okay. sometimes. No, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. And I still find that fascinating that these things, you're learning them after the fact and they're still aligning in a way. Yeah. <laughs> so I do find that really cool. Um, I guess with a lot of artists, one of the concepts I'm definitely fascinated with is the concept of world building. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because your work stems from a world that you've created it's titled Within, and mm -hmm. it's really detailed. Like, there's a full lore to it. You have the history of how, like, the, the creatures and people they were created, and it's a fully fleshed out world that you've created. So I wanted to talk about how you first conceptualized this, and then how you began to reflect it in your practice. But let's talk about the conceptualization first. Um, this is interesting, because I'm actually writing about that right now for my MFA dissertation. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and I'm writing about the genesis of within, both like in this reality and in the reality of within, because they're two different but simultaneous stories. Um, 
but speaking from this reality first, I guess, um, I would say that I had flickers of within starting when I was 16. Um, because the first sign, uh, um, I, I think I just used to, I had a sketchbook called Randomly Sketching. And I sketched this random humanoid figure with the eyes turned and the mouth turned and the nose upside down and then the boobs where the butt is and the butt where the boobs are and the legs and hands switched. And that is the figure that I used to represent O in my work today. And O is like the first person that existed in within and basically builds within. So I would say those flickers are 16 and... Then I I returned to that sketch in 2019 after I returned from my study abroad, which my study abroad was formative for me in terms of um I did not have a great time. It wasn't a bad experience. Like I didn't hate the school. I think I just wasn't in a great place mentally at the time. And so when I came back to London, I was very, I'm just going to do everything. I'm going to work the way I want to work. I'm going to um, go out as much as I want to go out. Um, so what I ended up coming back to was that alien sketch. And it was, I fell into this very weird routine <laughs> where I got lots of colored paper and I made a print, a liner print of the alien. And I repeatedly made prints of this alien I probably made at least 50 oh, wow. um for no reason I just kept doing it like I was just sitting I'll just wake up in the morning I'll be sitting at my desk and I'll, I'll just like manually print everything um and then also did a pastel drawing like a, a more realistic rendition of it I just kept studying that figure over and over again I didn't know what I didn't know to what end but I just kept doing it um, and then I think I took a break from that. And then in my third and final year of university, we had to make a proposal for a degree show. And for my three years at university, they kept on trying to push me to experiment materially. But I'm the kind of artist that I can't really experiment materially if I don't know what I'm doing conceptually. So I struggled with that because I'm like, I can't just go into the wood workshop and Play around, play around with wood. <laughs> I need to know what I'm doing with the wood. Yeah. Um, so by the time I submitted my proposal for my degree show, my first one, it was an installation kind of thing that wasn't very true to who I am as an artist. And then my tutor was like, oh, why are you like pretending to be something you're not? You're a painter. Like you do great 2D work. Why are you, like that's why you're confident. That's but you have the most skill. Like, why are you doing all this? I'm like, because you guys told me to. <laughs> um, so I went home that night and I laid everything I'd made in the three years on my bed. And I didn't like most of it. And I selected the two. I selected the ones I liked the most. And the two I liked the most ended up being the most intuitive works I'd made over the three years in terms of I made them because I had deadlines the next day. Okay, so, so just like flowed from you basically. Yeah, the ones that like I didn't have an idea what it was going to be at the end of the day, like when I, when I started it. It'd be like so I just decided. So literally that night, I had some pastel boys with me, and I just sat down and started banging it out. And that was the first time I made a portrait of one of my hybrids. 
and within. Okay. And well, then since then I've been working on it. So when you made that first portrait, was it another, I guess, light bulb moment for you? Like this is the beginning of something? Yeah, I just realized that I always knew I was very into fantasy, but I just also that's when I realized it was my default setting. Like as an artist. I I didn't care much for reality <laughs> um, or depicting reality. Um, yeah, because that lies what I because I did one and then I did another one. I, and then then came a question of situating them in landscapes. Because for me, I didn't want to be a portrait artist. That was not was I wanted to be the end and be all of my practice because I felt like I had a bit more to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I was that's why I started thinking about what the world these creatures inhabited look like and yeah that also came naturally like the hair just came the braids came naturally to the world um yeah <laughs> it, it within definitely came very organically for me but it, it stemmed from a lot of studies okay no no i mean i'd love to talk a little bit more about the braids in particular because okay. i find it so so amazing that you're able like like you infuse this reality that you've built with elements from our own reality and you flip them on its head and subverted them and i thought the use of the braids even as just like cocoons for the hybrids for example was Mm -hmm. super powerful just because like i don't i guess in our reality especially as like black people hair plays such a big part in like your identity and how you're perceived and things like that and I feel like that was kind of a cool way to sort of flip flip something on its head. And I don't know if that was intentional, but I just love to talk more about like the use of the braids in in within and then the use of them in your work as well, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's the first time I used it. Huh. I think I actually drew the first piece in which the braid is present, not vividly, but suggestively. It's probably an alien renaissance. And in that, it's coming out from a branch, from a tree branch. But it's not fully a braid. It just hints at a braided shape. And I started thinking about why I was drawn to this braid <laughs> in the landscape. Yeah. And... I the meaning again. Also, these things come after the fact. So when I make when I make work, it's not necessarily that I'm thinking. Oh, I want to pass this across, and I'm going to and I'm going to do this, 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 and this way. It's more like one of those ink blots tests where I make the work and then I decipher the meaning I take from it as the person it came from. Um, so with the braids. It was like I like fantasy. I like playing with language. I like metaphorical language so and idioms and how idioms can make new meanings if you take them very literally so um uh, this idea of the world in my head and like my hair being on my head and yeah so the braids then essentially replacing grass and the top and being embedded in the topography of the world so the braids end up being the primary material in within and also I when I did when I first started incorporating the braids it's now that I've started leaving them maybe there's some 
there's some hair that's left as like afro puffs but then i started off exclusively with braids and those braids i, I was looking at cornrows i was thinking of the word cornrows and then the double meaning for that um because yes as the hairstyle but then again in fantasy cinema um when aliens land well in sci-fi cinema to be specific when an alien lands in the field of corn and so then looking at cornrows as the site of alien arrival and the sites for fantasy that's why i really lean into the hair more i'll say that's such a cool way of pulling it together because yeah you're taking like idioms and things grounded in our own in our everyday reality and then flipping them in a really unique cool way like when you said um the hair acts as the grass because it's like on your head like i can literally see it kind of pushing through and it's like this world above your head and being able to sort of visualize it like that yeah exactly so i find it really interesting that you derive meaning like after the fact from the work so i'd love mm -hmm. if you could kind of walk me through what it looks like when you're putting together a, a painting or a drawing or any work of art from conception to actually getting it down on the materials like what is that process like for you um it depends so the thing about within for me is that it's a paracosm so it's a world in my head and so i can literally i i show us those symptoms of having fantasy personality disorder i mean for actually no fun I think it's FPP, it's not really a disorder or a personality type or something, but being like spending most of your days daydreaming and just being obsessed with fantasy and consumption or like way of life and being interested in the metaphysical. So um, I literally can do, like I can zone out and just be in within. Um, so the sometimes it's, I just get like maybe a flash of an image and I always have my notebook and pen on me that's a very artist thing that I used to have I go through notebooks like nothing I'm trying to switch to an iPad <laughs> but it's hard to carry around um but yeah so I sometimes I just have a flash of an image and I draw it in my notebook and then when I get to the studio I try and work on that and then it changes while I work on it so I make decisions on the spots so even that first initial sketch is not always um what it ends up looking like and this also depends on the sitter i use because well, i often use myself so I, my practice is very independent and in that i will just have a little tripod thing i'll literally just set up my phone and wear what i think i want the characters to be wearing and pose and literally just go to the studio and do that and bang out the painting. And, but sometimes I, it really, it really differs because sometimes I, if I'm working on multiple pieces at a, at a time, I'll just cut up different sizes of paper and paint different colors and then work intuitively on them. And that's when it's more of an assembly line process where maybe for like a week I'm thinking of the painting elements another week i'm thinking about the drawing elements and another week i'm maybe thinking about the printmaking so it really differs from my mood <laughs> to mood 
Well, yeah, I can also just sit down and within. Like the longest time I've sat down and within and just kind of explored the world is like eight hours. Oh wow. So I guess what you're one of those people that literally sees everything like in 3D type of thing in your head. Um not not in 3D, but yeah, my mind's eye is very vivid. I can imagine if you're able to pull like these types of images just from your imagination. Yeah, it's definitely gotta be vivid. <laughs> yeah. On average, how long is there a way to say how long it takes you on average to finish a piece? Uh no, because it really differs. Cause it, like yeah, I don't usually try to finish a piece in one sitting. It's very rare that I do that. But it's possible, depending on the size of the work. But and it depends on the intricacy, because I have some works where there are lots of breeds and that requires a lot of repetitive motions doing the same thing for like hours. Yeah. And but uh, for an average piece of mine, cumulative like maybe uh, uh let's say six hours. Okay. But it'll be spread out because this decisions have to be made between those. So it can be like six hours over the span of like two weeks. Okay. What's the but then yeah, I, always work, I always work on multiple at a time. I always have like 17 works on my wall. Oh, really? Like that many for real? Yeah. Yeah. Like I w at least five, I would say. But then it can be up to like 17. Okay. I see why you're always going through notebooks then because these sketches just come. So like the thoughts just come to you and you're just like, I need to get this down immediately. Or is it that sometimes you just go to within looking for inspiration? Sometimes it it's both. Um, but I definitely have enough sketches to last me like the next eight years, I would say. Um, if, if I should have a creative block anytime soon, I'm good. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, have you? I don't know if you watched Eternals, but there's this scene. You have? No, I haven't. I haven't. That's like, uh, I've been kind of sporadic with the Marvel movies ever since Endgame, so... I've watched some, I've missed some. Fine. Well, because in Eternal, there's this character who is basically seeing images from their past life. And there's a scene where she's just drawing, like, to express what she's seen. And it's almost like being in a trance-like state. So I can get into that sometimes. No, not as erratically, but where I'm just doing the same thing for like an hour and I'm just sitting down with a notebook. I have to imagine that's comforting on some level though, to know that you have almost like an infinite trove of ideas just at any given moment. Yes, I have, my classmates recently joked that my mind is like being on asset 24-7. I mean, from looking at your work, I can see, <laughs> I see why someone would make that comparison because there's a lot of really it's really trippy work and even your use of color and space and like negative space it's it's very emotive and I just it really blows my mind that this is all things that you're visualizing from this world that you built for yourself. Yeah, well the thing about with it is that it also parallels my life. So it's me seeing my life through a fantastical lens 
So it's like, for example, if I actually so an interesting thing with the hair, for example, is that in last, if you look at some of my recent work, there's some works where the braid is brown. And actually growing up, I was really allowed to do any other hair color other than black. And like because of school rules or like family rules. So with the brown braid, for example, I experienced a loss in the family last year that kind of made me um, recalibrate and like rethink everything, every little detail in my life. And it was because, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with grief, you don't want to feel feel like not like this massive thing has happened in your life because especially when someone close to you passes you're looking around and you're seeing life go on for everyone else and you want to you're just shocked by the fact that the world can go on to an extent so um yeah so making lots of little incremental changes in my life that I would have to live with every day not that I never reminding but I wanted it I wanted to wear it and show it like show that this massive change had happened for me. So for example, like I always had the the black hair before that. And um yeah, so I changed my hair color, like my braid color, um, in my real life and in my work. So it reflects that grief that I was going through. And so you can see that in the work. And so the first piece that actually features um the brown braid is two lizards, one left. That's the one that's on the cover of the Dada magazine. And that's like about, the piece itself is about loss. So it all, like, all goes on within mirrors what's going on in my actual life a lot of the time. Sometimes it's very direct, sometimes very indirect. Would you say it is like a therapeutic process almost for you? Um, I don't really find myself working on those emotions in real time because for example the i'll say the emotions worked through into lizards one left the events happened maybe like three months before and sometimes it's like a year before so is there my practice is therapeutic for me in general and that it's my safe space of just doing but i think a lot of the times when by the time I'm working, I've usually work, work through those emotions. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. So this a lot of your work is is very you focused. You've said that your work stems from a place of critical self interest, and that's perfectly understandable when everything is literally coming from within you and from within. No pun intended. And. <laughs> I wonder, like, when you're creating work, because at the end of the day, you do put it out there for people to view. So is there, like, are you ever trying to communicate with the viewers, or is there any level of communication that takes place within your art, would you say? I think I'm never really trying to say anything to anyone. I... I think I made a point very early on that I wanted to make work for myself and not anyone else. I didn't want to speak for anyone else but myself. Um, and that I made that choice for many different reasons. But so, so my practice is definitely one of those that if someone happens to relate to it, I'm glad. But that's not the aim. Um, 
but in terms of people still understanding us, I think that for someone to really know my practice well and decipher also these messages, they have to really dig into it. I don't think a lot of people can see one work and get the story. You have to maybe like go on my website, read about the lore of within, um, see a couple of shows and really understand the language of the world. And then people have clear understandings, I'll say. So I have, sometimes when people um, remember the names of the, the hybrids and they're actively being able to tell me what's happening. Okay, I get what you mean. Um, I I guess what I'm thinking is mm -hmm. you already like derive meaning and things after the fact, right? So even though mm -hmm. you're trying to communicate with viewers per se, do have you ever had like experiences maybe at an exhibition where someone who I guess is familiar with your lore has given you new insight to your own work? Is that Has that ever happened before? I believe so. I feel like I had something like that recently. I can't remember which work it was, but I I think so, yes. Actually, I think I get that more so when works are in progress. Um, oh, how so? I... Because there are times, because I, I do see lots of art. Um, and I had a friend recently come to the studio and he saw um, displacements under um, three carries. I can't remember the name. It's not the works anymore. I have a lot. He saw that when it was in progress and immediately he was like, oh, Hilma, I have Clint. I was like, oh my God, how can you see that influence? Like it's so buried in there. <laughs> And it ends up being a very spiritual work, which is, and Hilma F. Clint's work is very spiritual. So it's people being able to see, I think, I think it's also when people have spent also time with me and they know me as a person. So mm -hmm. that's where it's more interesting that really close friends come while the work is in process after knowing me as a person in process. Um, and being able to pick up on things that a stranger might not pick up on. But I, I think I do also get the occasional stranger giving me interesting insights. Yeah. I just kind of remember. I can imagine. It, it must be rare just because, like, again, everything is so personal to you. So it makes sense that the people that know you best are probably the ones able to derive the most meaning from the work. Yeah, actually, I think a lot of art historians are able to see connections I make unintentionally. Yeah, because I, I recently had some still lives in um the show I just did at Co. And someone pointed out to me that they were in the color palette of the Greek vases, like the ancient Greek vases. And that was and subconscious. It was unintentional. Oh, yeah. But it's like I've seen them, <laughs> so like, and I think that for those works, I was also drawing from Magdalene Odundo's work. So I do tend to make a lot of art historical references, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. 
I love that you studied art history because in some of your work as well, I, one of the pieces I found really interesting was in alien history. And I love that piece because it felt very meta to me where you have people studying the history of the lore that's like you've created. And I wondered if you like if that piece gave you any meaning in terms of like your relationship with Nigerian art history or African art history, or was there anything that you felt you were trying to say there? Um, yeah, actually the line of prints that I used for that work, I had tested it out on a piece of paper beforehand and I ended up writing the text museum Museum is mom and mom is museum. And that's just, it ended up not being a work. <laughs> um, but it was just about this idea of our ancestors and living ancestors being these living archives and, and museums essentially being meant uh, that they're meant to be or they should be representative of our history than the whole like griot culture of passing on history orally um and how that changes i was just thinking also about how history is passed down for those ones and yes in our in growing up in lagos the museums aren't <laughs> were tip-top shape and history books exist but i guess uh, when i was in primary school i think History, Nigerian history wasn't really taught that much. I didn't really learn much beyond Mongo Park, Samoa, Jai, Crowther, yeah, um, Civil War. But yeah, after that point, I didn't really learn much about Nigerian history. Everything, I ended up learning much more about Nigerian art history and Nigerian history when I moved to England, which was, which was but I ended up learning from Nigerians, I think. But it was just... I have I have a complex relationship with learning about Nigerian arts history. It's and history in general. So that comes into my work a lot. I because I, I I do have a character in my work, um, Araro, who has the tribal marks on their cheeks, and they have a second set of eyes behind their tribal marks, and they're basically able to con commune with ancestors, and they are the historians of the world. And yeah. So I, I do tend, and that's the figure I've been looking at for almost a year now, because there are eight hybrids, but I've I've looked at Umbanda, who's like the firstborn. I've looked at Araro. Um, in my current show, I've looked at Iroji, and I'm currently looking at Iro Iroko. So I'm basically working through the hybrids. I'm taking my time, but yes, there is Araro that has that plays this role of being the historian. So that she represents the historian in me. Okay. So do all the hybrids, I guess, each carry a part of you? Yes. They're basically fragments of my being. Because um, the story goes that O was the first person on this planet. And Urubumi, myself, met them and planted its offspring with them. And the oh, oh came about when I was born. Like the, the Lord goes that oh is who I was when I was born, like as a baby. So 
I'm really into ideas of past lives and reincarnation and um, into these theories of children remembering their past lives until they're able to speak or like before they really gain consciousness in this body. Yeah. Um, and so I look at O as who I was born as. So the baby with the ancestral coding I had and the accumulation of past lives that my soul had lived. And, but then early, the story goes that O only lived on earth for seven days. And that's because in Yoruba culture, when you name the child on the seventh day. And so I I recently, I actually wrote about this for, um the, this is all an essay in the Dada magazine, issue one that came out this last year. So um, the idea is that, uh, so I quoted a Kweke amazing here where they wrote that when you name something it comes into existence. So once I was named Ulubumi, that Ulubumi was created and Ulubumi is my life in this in this life, in this reality. Um, not ignoring my past life, but all being perhaps the foundation. And but then Ulubumi has kind of forgotten the past lives, or like not less maybe less connected with the ancestral coding, and um has been influenced a lot by the values of the current society that she lives in so that I live in um so O and Ulbumi are different in that regard so the idea is that O retreated into my mind and built within and then when I was 16 or 20 I'm working through those images that's, that was me gradually becoming aware of within um, existence and so the story goes that O and Ulubumi, like eventually Ulubumi gets pulled into the world and O and Ulubumi plant some children in some breeder cocoons well, not children, but offspring. Um, I've been working through that word because they're not really my children. <laughs> so um, the idea is that those eight offspring were born were hybrids, and each of them were born with mutations that were triggered by um, O's alien gene because O is depicted as an alien in my work. And each of the mutations are based on my upbringing. So, for example, you have Agama, which has like the Agama lizard's tail that runs around in Lagos. So they just end up embodying these objects that I grew up with. And those objects and those mutations represent, well, hints as the parts of me that they, they represent. So for example, the firstborn Umbanda has some, basically, I guess, prongs of skin on their head that looks like the archbishop's hat. And, yeah. and I was raised Christian. So um, th that's, so Mada is basically in charge of spiritual guidance and seeking guidance in the world. So and then the travel mark, the one Aurora, the one travel marks, then being in charge of this ancestral connection and so on and so on. Before I continue, I strongly encourage everyone to listen, everyone that's listening, to check out Bumi's website. I'll drop the link um in the description box for this episode. But the full lore of Within is available there. You can see her works. You can see press that she's been involved in as well. And I think it will just help you get a deeper understanding of her as an artist and her work in general. But I just wanted to include that because as you can all see, this world that has been built is so rich, so, so detailed. And 
I just, it truly blows my mind that you've been able to sculpt something that feels this alive. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying, it's still in progress. And that's actually what I want to talk about. So Within is already so rich, so detailed, and it's still growing, it's still in progress. Do you see like your modes of expression expanding to accommodate, I guess, the further depth of within? Yeah. Um, so I think one thing, uh, well, there are lots of answers to that, but right now I tend to find myself exploring the space more. So I'm expecting to have more pieces where a figure isn't present at all. And it's just exploring the landscape of within and what that looks like and different kind of hair plants and um, buildings and yeah, just the architecture and the landscape. And also I've been having back and forth because I'm doing my MFA right now and I've been having, because people keep on wanting me to immerse them in the world by like painting a mural or having an immersive installation. And I am very resistant to that because I don't think within is there yet. I don't think it's in a place where I want to expose it that much just yet. And I still have the authority over it. So I can do whatever I want. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's growing, but I'm very much not rushing it at all. I'm not trying to, because like I said, I've only, even just exploring the characters, I've only properly explored two or three of the hybrids in my work. And where I, I think people can definitely feel different shifts, because for example, the work that the exhibition I just did at Co in Lagos, this is my first exhibition at home, my first solo exhibition at home. And it has a very different feel from the previous two because the first two were following, because I, I, yeah, I forgot to mention this in the law that the portal that Ulubumi was first pulled through stays open. So anyone I meet in, my, in this reality, in my waking life, um, there's a version of them that lives on in my mind. And therefore some, some of them get pulled through that portal. So, port, so humans end up being present. So like my friends, family end up being present in within as these kind of, Cross reality migrants. So humans are basically the immigrants in within, and the hybrids are the indigenous people. And in my first two exhibitions, it followed the humans entering within because it was also, I, I, I wanted the viewers to feel, to be in the same position as the subjects in terms of being introduced to a new world. And so those works are much more unsettling and disorienting than some of the more current works I made for Co. And yeah, that, that was that was the feedback I kept getting that this one felt a bit, a bit more safer and comfortable. And I was like, yeah, that was intentional because one, it was my first solo exhibition at home. So I did want it to feel comfortable. <laughs> um, and I, I was following the hybrids as opposed to the humans. And it wouldn't make sense for the hybrids to feel uncomfortable in their home. So just little things like that. I, I don't really aim to, because yeah, the, some people were saying that it's, they wanted it to be a bit more unsettling like some of my other works, but I don't aim to have a practice that is one note. Like I, I 
hope to explore lots of different emotions. Sometimes they'll, they'll be happy. Sometimes they'll be sad. Sometimes they'll be angry. Sometimes they'll be unsettled. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in terms of the range of building, I think I'm still exploring that range of emotion that can be expressed and the spatial exploration. I love being able to get this additional context and some of these details from you because now, for example, some of those uh, pieces from your first exhibition make even more sense because they do feel ominous. I believe, were those like some of the braided labyrinth pieces? Yeah. Yeah, so they feel like definitely they feel ominous and there's an uncomfortable, almost like tension when you're viewing it. And I love being able to understand where that actually stems from. Um, what would you say the relationship between the humans and the the aliens is within, since humans are now the migrants, right? What is, is mm -hmm. there, um, what is the relationship like? Let me know even, like, what's the relationship like? Um, really, the, the hybrids are kind of, because the only alien is O, and O, I've written this part of the lore, um, on my website, but O basically ascends, kind of like Jesus did <laughs> at some point, and isn't present in the world as a being or as a spirit, um, uh, as an essence. And so it's only the hybrids and the humans, and then I occasionally visit as a human. So they don't necessarily disrespect humans, <laughs> like the hybrids, but they're kind of like their babysitters because the humans are coming to this new world that they don't know. And then the hybrids are in charge of like finding them and guiding them through and explaining what's going on to them. But then after that whole process, the humans are free to move around as they want. So um, yeah, it's more of a babysitting relationship at first. Um, but in Two Lizards, like uh, Two Lizards is a series that I decided to make a love story um, so there are currently three pieces in this story, I'll say. Two of them are cool. Um, so that's two lizards the day they met. And we started something. And then two lizards, one left is the one that um, is on that cover. And those three already show part of a love story where one of the hybrids falls in love with a human, but it doesn't, basically, I, I guess I'm giving you the intel before I release, before I finish the piece. But it looks like the male lizard is a lizard, but he's not, he's a human. And he's just wearing a lizard costume, essentially. So this idea of a person masquerading as being one of the hybrids and really being in tune with them but not actually. So yeah, different hybrids have different relationships with different humans. I knew that there would be a wonderfully complex answer to that and it makes... <laughs> um, okay, so I want to go back to your exhibition and ground it in our reality for a little bit. Okay. Um, how did your first solo exhibition. So this is Escape to Within. Mm -hmm. How did that come together? And what was the process like of preparing for 
a solo exhibition? Um, it was, it came about with, so this was the Dada Gallery. So I worked with Lincoln Dada. And we had actually first worked together back in 2018, actually when I was, in my study abroad and she was having her first pop-up exhibition because um that first started off as a blog on tumblr and they called politics so she first did a pop-up exhibition for actually creating a fully fledged gallery in 2020 so we first worked together back then and um i guess kept in touch and then in 2020 during the lockdown um they're when they got a bit more safe, she came and saw some works and she said that she wanted to um do it solo. So we started working towards that. And I so working for the solo was actually the first time I had a proper studio space since probably sixth form. Because when I was in uni, I didn't really work in uni much because I didn't I I, I didn't find the studio space conducive. For me, it was a very large shared room. I don't like working in front of people like that. So I used to work in my bedroom a lot. So working for, like doing, working on Escapes Within was very, felt like I was in a cocoon because I got the studio and I was by myself behind a closed door, just working like 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. seven days a week for like, two months um I'll take the occasional day off but it was sporadic <laughs> um well yeah it was a very intense period of making because I was also so it was my first solo as well as a nervous wreck <laughs> um so I was very intense during that period um the most fulfilling part was probably hmm, probably seeing everything up at the end or I think I'm still getting the fulfillment from that because I don't think I realized how many people saw that show. Because I kept I keep on meeting people and they're like, oh, I saw your show at Cromwell Place, like in South Ken. And I'm just like, wow, like people people that I had no like I expected my friends to see it. I expected people I knew in the arts world to see it, but just random people that I had no relationship with. I'm meeting them today. And I'm not even meeting them in an arts context. Like I can go to a restaurant and then someone's like, oh yeah, they saw that show. So I think that's where I'm getting the film f- the fulfillment for that. Like how far it reached and how people still remember it. I mean, yeah, I, I think that yeah, that's really cool to see. First of all, just to be in a room and see all these works that have come from your brain positioned in one place. And it's like, wow, I did that. But then yeah, <laughs> to be able to have people come up to you and and be impacted by your work, even when you didn't expect them to be. I I can't imagine something like probably more fulfilling than that. Yeah, and I also curated the show, so I, I yeah, seeing it up was fun because I also opted for a mind map as opposed to um, an exhibition text, and we had those black strips of paint that kind of like punctuated the exhibition so that was also my first like super public curatorial attempt as well so yeah there are different parts of it that were fulfilling for me what so you your first lega show is literally just wrapping up now 
like um, today. <laughs> like today, today's the last day. Yeah. I can't even tell yeah, you see it because by the time this comes out, all of clothes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what lessons have you carried from prior exhibitions uh, into the latest one? And what were some of the, did Lagos present you with any difficulties that you didn't have to deal with in the UK in terms of getting ready for the exhibition? Um, I think it's important to recognize that I was also, because I also curated a show in Lagos this Christmas. So simultaneously, I think the day my solo exhibition was opening, my curatorial show was ending. So I was doing things back to back. So it was also, I guess my challenges are more so the volume of work I was attempting, um, even like administratively. But um, the lessons, because my last two shows, I had a very heavy hand curatorially. Um, but this is the first solo exhibition in, that I did not curate. I gave guidance, but I, I'm not the curator for the show. That was um, Osho Lang Poo. Um, so I guess uh, the I won't say I learned it from other shows, but I've just learned it in my career so far. But kind of letting go of the reins where I see fit. Because, yeah, if, if I were curating both, that would have been a lot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think my main lesson that I keep on learning these days is um, working smartly and not overworking myself because I do have that tendency. Very valuable lesson. Um, what goes into curating a show? Um, so there are different methods you can attempt in terms of the work that you choose to select. So... You can perhaps go to artist studios and have studio visits with them and see what work they have available and build a show out of already existing work. But I, but I um approached these two artists Yadichima Ukakalu and Walima Tuluko because I their work was in tune with the my postgraduate dissertation, so the one I was writing for my art history degree. Um, because I wrote my dissertation about the remediation of Igungu masquerades in fine arts in in contemporary Nigerian arts. Amazing. Um, so, and I was familiar with both of their works, and I'm very because I'm into fantasy and this whole fa fantasy personality thing I spoke about. So I'm very interested in the sublime and the metaphysical. So even looking at masquerades as embodying spirits and the power of masks and masquerades, I was familiar with both their works and so I reached out to them like six months before the exhibition and told them that oh, this is what I've been studying this is what I'm writing right now this is what I've been working on and I'd love to create a show with you guys um and I gave them a proposal and so they built they made the work knowing my vision so that I didn't tell them what to make but kind of exchanging resources and being like oh I'm really interested in this idea and having them interpret that idea themselves the way they would want to. So yeah, that is the approach I took. So what goes into curating is also just like a lot of admin, which I'm not used to handling myself. <laughs> so it was very tasking. So just in, I'm used to like writing maybe the exhibition text and um, 
maybe doing admin from home, but actually having to maybe like pick up works or deliver artworks to the framers or like um to the venue or um yeah, just handling the nitty gritty things. But I had a partner, I worked with Aziza Balogun of Sabo Art Advisory on this project. So she handled most of the logistics. So again, it was is that working smart thing of I knew I wanted to be the creative brain in this curatorial attempt, not but I did not have the capacity at the time to handle everything because I was working on my own solo as well. Oh yeah, for sure. For um, sure. Yeah. So it was but yeah, it was it was fun. I, I liked the show. <laughs> um yeah, it, it was interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I'm done. Um, what do you find, I guess, fulfilling about the curatorial process compared to your own exhibition where it's your art on display and you're not curating it? Um, yeah, I think because I work in many facets, because, um, again, I feel like the whole art historian curator side of me people aren't very aware of because I haven't made it very public until recently. Um, it's something that I've been doing for a long time. I mean, my first, my undergrad degree was in fine arts, but then, yeah, I had the master's in history of arts and archaeology. And it just pulls from such a different place, but similar place at the same time. Um, so even, so, for example, I'm looking, I'm using, for, in my practice, I'm using myself as a vessel for an entire world that kind of be seen and making a scene. And so this idea of visualizing the unseen and the spiritual and metaphysical. But I'm, as a historian, I'm interested in that in other people's practices. And I think I, in, I think just looking at my dissertation that I wrote about the masquerades, because I, I wrote this in, looking in trying to define a category for these sorts of works. So I was looking at um a term coined by Anadi Okarafor, who's um who likes to be referred to as a Niger American writer. Um so she made she makes a lot of work that was constantly referred to as Afrofuturism and she didn't feel like that category accurately um supported her work. And so she coined the she coined two terms, African futurism and African Jujuism. And I too also have that thing where people frequently refer to my work as Afrofuturism. And I'm like, in no way is this Afrofuturism. It does not apply in almost any context. And African Jujuism probably is the more appropriate context. But um so she defines African Jujuism as a subcategory of fantasy that combines the imaginative with true existing African cosmologies and spiritualities. Um, which then, again, like as opposed to Afrofuturism, doesn't really place the fantasy in this technologically advanced future. And even using the prefix African as opposed to Afro, it's not about being Black, because I don't think Africans don't experience Blackness in the same way people in the diaspora do. And yeah. I think conflating our movements into one is not useful in any way <laughs> to any of us um because the works aren't coming from the same place and it's just another form of othering if we just push ourselves together we're, we're not meant to be together um 
so yeah, I was looking. So that is the work I'm currently doing as a historian and writer. So looking at practices that exist in that category. Because there was also another movement coined by Camilla Martin about Black Voodoo aesthetics. So yeah, in this situation, I'm working through these ideas and using the masquerade as an example, or as the grounding example for this type of fantasy work. So at the end of the day, my work as a as a historian and curator benefits my work as a as an artist and vice versa. So I'm doing the same thing, but um with different hats on and from different perspectives. No, I love that. It feels like you're getting a fully holistic experience that's allowing you to use like every part of yourself and your brain when it comes to art. And I think that's amazing. Oh yeah, I'm just obsessive. <laughs> and I also love how, I guess, we're moving forward, and this is across all fields, I think, with African art, and we're getting more specific with how we name things and moving away from umbrella terms. I think that's going to be so important, and it just helps people to know that they can exist in certain spaces without feeling like they have to belong to this monolith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I always love to ask my my guests if they have advice for our listeners. And I'd love to know um, what advice you might have for any young artists out there, visual or otherwise, looking to start out. Maybe they have a world in their head, maybe they don't, but any advice that you could impart on them? Um, I think probably working intuitively and... I I don't think working intuitively works if you haven't done any sort of self-reflection. Um because also the time when you go to art school and you're in art school critiques is basically like therapy. And you're trying to unpack why you're drawn to certain things. So I think yeah, you need to really analyze yourself and spend time with yourself and get to know yourself and be genuine, just being genuine about what you like. Because even, for example, with my whole world building thing, it also stems from me being an avid video game player and being honest with that. Sometimes my work is referencing a video game as opposed to an art piece, and that is fine. Um, there isn't, you don't have to follow society's hierarchy of what is high art and what is low art or anything like that. That's just um, BS. <laughs> so um, you can just be drawn to, is, I think, yeah, the advice of being honest about what you're drawn to and being yourself and not trying to be anybody else. Preach. I mean, what more needs to be said? That's that's perfect. <laughs> um, I am a huge advocate for self-reflection, so thank you for mentioning that. I think it's super important just in knowing yourself, which will, I think, allow you to create on a deeper, more assured level. Um, mm-hmm. What's the last video game you played? Oh, I mean, oh, I played what did I play yesterday. Um, I watched the new Sims expansion pack trailer yesterday, but I played um, the Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild last night. I need to get that. I have a Switch now, so I need to get that. Oh yeah. Oh, you need to. That was that was my life during lockdown. <laughs> I was just playing that over and over again, and the new one is coming out in a few months. So oh, okay, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play it then so I can yeah, it's amazing get ahead of it. Um what do you have coming up in 2023? Anything that you can share with us? 
Um, no, I think <laughs> um, and also I, I'm taking a chiller year this year because I'm also finishing my MFA. So I, well, I guess my degree show, my graduate show in June, but everything else is still not pinned down quite just yet. But some things are in the works. You'll see when you'll see, I guess. No worries, no worries. We'll be on the lookout for sure. Um, definitely good luck with the rest of your MFA. Um, wishing you Thank all the you. And with your graduate show as well, I'm sure that's going to be spectacular. So good luck. I hope so. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Honestly, um, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while. Um, I'm grateful for you making the time. I've had a great time. I'm hoping that I can be at one of your exhibitions in the near future and just take in this work in person. And yeah, thank you for your for your time, for your expertise, and for bringing us into your world. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome, I guess. <laughs> but thanks. Thank you.